So Liz, tell me about your Garmin. Well, um, do you want to know about my old Garmin from back in 2010 or like my Garmin now? Was it a clockwork Garmin? Sundial Garmin? No, but but sometimes if I took it on a long run, it didn't last for the whole long run. So I was usually pretty happy when the battery lasted for the workout portion, uh, because that's when you really want to know what your pace is. And back then, well, we only really bought the Garmin for the GPS and I didn't even buy it. It was actually kind of a donation. Like I had a a friend that bought one. Uh, he was a triathlete and, you know, triathletes, they tend to like gear more than runners. Although I have to say that I really like gear. Um, and he ended up just giving me this Garmin cause he was just frustrated with it. He never used it. Uh, but the batteries on the Garmin watches were not really great. So you couldn't really wear them as watches like you do now. Um, or at least like I do now you'd ha- have the Garmin really just for the run. But some of my long runs, um, it, it, it died at the end. So I think the thing about garments is, you know, in the past, they just used to be like, like all the tools great for measuring how far you went mm-hmm. approximately mm-hmm. and how long it took you. Yep. And that was kind and, of it. Yeah. Um, but now you get all sorts of, you're, you're a wizard garment. I always give up when I, when I have something to do with my garment <laughs> and I, I go, Oh, we're training. It looks complicated. How do I program this? I always ask you. <laughs> Because yeah, you, you know I the love, stuff. So love Garmin. How does it work now? Now you can have all kinds of things on your Garmin. It's not just about the pace. You can have you can have your pace in, you know, in kilometers per hour, in uh minutes per kilometer, minutes per mile. You can uh have all kinds of other data too. Like so if I'm running if I'm running Daniel's running formula um and following that, can I get my VO2 max off the Garmin? So your Garmin is going to tell you your VO2 max, um, uh, but you didn't sound very convincing there. <laughs> but it's not going to correspond to your V dot value if you're anything like me. Okay, that's uh, I'm already confused now. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that confused actually because I've read Jack Daniel's running formula. So, um, but um, we're going to have to explain that to the boys and girls. Yep, sounds like a plan. Hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review running books to help you decide if you'd like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running and maybe inspire you to advance your running or try something new. My name is Alan, with my co-host Liz. We're going to talk today about a very famous book, Jack Daniels' famous Daniels Running Formula, 4th edition. So Daniel's running formula is a training guide based on principles that coach and exercise physiology PhD Jack Daniels has been using to train his athletes for decades. Basically, this book is a classic. The book is divided into two parts. Part one, understanding the formula for training. And part two is applying the formula to competitive events. The first part describes the fundamentals of what goes into good running performance types of training intensities, the VDOT system, uh, other topics like treadmill and fitness training, as well as taking breaks. Um, The second section contains plans that incorporate the principles discussed in the first part. And there are plans for 800 meter, uh, 1500 meter to two mile, 5k, 10k cross country running, which the cross country running is, um, is more of like general guidelines, not exactly a plan. 
Uh, there's for 15K to 30K race distances, marathon, ultra distance, and triathlon, uh, which ultra distance and triathlon are new to the fourth edition. The end of the book contains a pace conversion chart in case you need to convert a minute per kilometer pace to a minute per 400 meter pace, for example. Uh, that would be in the case of if you're going to do some workouts on the track. Uh, this is useful if you have access to a track since GPS pieces are not always reliable uh, when you're running on the track. So a little bit about Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels has been called the world's best running coach by Runner's World Magazine. He has more than 50 years of experience coaching and mentoring some of the world's top distance runners at both the collegiate and post-collegiate levels, including Jim Ryan, Penny Werthner, Ken Martin, Larry Lawson, Alicia Shea, Peter Gilmore, Lisa Martin, Magdalena Levy-Boulay, and Janet Shiboron bokam I hope I got that, uh, that pronunciation right at the end. He also won two Olympic medals and one world championship medal in the men's modern pentathlon. Daniels has decades of experience as a track and cross-country coach at institutions such as Oklahoma City University, the University of Texas, Brevard College, and the, the State University of New York at Cortland. Under his guidance, Cortland runners won eight NCAA Division III national championships, 30 individual national titles, and more than 130 All-American awards. He was named Women's Cross-Country Coach of the 20th Century by the NCAA Division III. Since 1997, Daniels has been the National Running Coach Advisor for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society Team and Training Program, which involves coaching thousands of marathon runners each year. He has also enjoyed coaching members of the Nike Farm Team and the Caskis, a group of Peruvian marathoners. And I probably said that completely wrong. <sighs> Taking a huge <laughs> breath because that was a big, big, big. Uh, Hold on, I'm not done. Set of bio and intro. Oh, sorry. Two more points. Go. Uh, Daniels has logged years of graduate study and research on distance running in both the United States and Sweden. He holds a doctoral degree in exercise physiology from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He also studied exercise science at the Royal Gymnastics Central Institute in Stockholm under renowned sports scientists Per Olaf Astrand. In recent years, Daniels has been an associate professor in the human movement program at the A.T. Still University in Mesa, Arizona, in addition to coaching Olympic runners. You almost took the whole podcast up, um, <laughs> giving us the bio of Jack Daniels' uh, past, I guess, because he's been around for a lot of years and got all that years of experience and input. So there's plenty to talk about there. He does. And that's why his book is on the fourth edition. It's uh, basically w one of the, one of the classics that, you know, most runners should read. Um, I, I know it took us a little while to read, but you know, glad we finally did. So where's Jack and what have you done with him? So, uh, so we did try and get Jack Daniels on the podcast, but um, he he couldn't he couldn't make it. He did though offer to respond to some of our questions. So we ended up sending him uh, about seven questions, which he did answer in writing. So um, maybe we can just we'll drop those answers those. in as we go. 
Exactly. So like the first question I asked was, how did you first decide to write this book and how did it make it to the fourth edition? And uh, the answer was kind of surprising. Yeah, if I uh, if I remember rightly, he said I was having a lot of success coaching at a college here in New York, and it prompted runners and coaches from many places to contact me relative to different questions they had about training. It got to where he was basically inundated with so many questions that he wasn't doing anything else. So he decided to get all these people off his back from hassling him. He would basically write a book to answer all the questions about training so he could free up his own time. Mm -hmm. And then after that, um, his publishers started hassling him to do new, um, to do new editions. So um, human kinetics uh, then moved in and said, Oh, we need another edition. We need another edition. So I don't think he ever set out to be an author. He was really just set out to be a researcher, a physiologist, and and, and a running coach. Yeah. Um, but he was so successful, he had to write a book to keep everybody <laughs> <laughs> keep everybody off his case, basically. I guess it's a perfect example of, you know, how they say uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, not that he invented books, but, you know, he ended up writing this book because um, he wanted more free time to do some coaching. I guess it's true. So do you, do you want to move on to the other questions or uh, mm -hmm. do you want to? Yeah, let's go ahead. From a Alan and Liz review point of view, um, we, we were getting, we got copies of, thank you, Human Kinetics, copies of the fourth edition. And um, we went through the fourth edition. But I guess from a reader's point of view, they'll probably, we figured they'd probably want to know, you know, what's new in the fourth edition. They might have old editions or they might have access to older editions. Um, so we asked Jack to tell us uh, what was new in this edition. So he basically just said, in the fourth edition, I tried to simplify some things already presented in the earlier editions. I added a little part about how to keep track of daily training sessions. I presented a little about training for a triathlon race based somewhat on my training for modern pentathlon, which involved both swimming and running events. So the, the triathlon section was new. He also said, I also added a part about ultra running, basically presenting the type of training Magdalena Boule uses. I coached Magda for running and she made herself a great ultra runner, winning some major ultra events around the world. So I guess that's how the ultra running chapter got in the book, because I, I, I actually have um, one of our teammate, uh, Joe. Uh, he had lent me a while back his Daniel's running formula because I, you know, I knew I had to read this uh, at some point and it's the third edition. So I compared the chapters and um, that was new as well as uh, uh, I didn't see in the third edition that there was a chapter about treadmill running and there was a chapter about treadmill running in the, in the fourth edition. I guess we'll get to that in terms of when we start talking about the content, you and I are going to discuss that a little bit, but before we get to that, I noticed on the fourth edition that the front on the fourth edition is a very dynamic picture of Sarah Hall. Mm -hmm. I thought, hmm, I wonder why Sarah Hall is on the front. So we basically asked him. And what did he say? He said, Ryan and Sarah Hall lived in my house for some time. When my wife and I were spending a couple of years in North Carolina, um, they obviously had a good relationship with the Halls. But he said Sarah was actually the choice of uh, his publisher. Human Kinetics USA. Jack actually provided them with several names of runners, men and women that he'd like to see on the cover. And Human Kinetics selected Sarah. I think that was a, a, a good choice. 
seeing as how right now she's she's running yeah, really she's well. Yeah, she's right on top of the game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I guess the next thing um, uh, I wanted to ask this question, because in the book, uh, Jack Daniels talks about back-to-back workout days. And so I asked him, you talk about back-to-back workout days where you prescribe workouts on two consecutive days and then have more days rest before the next workout. So basically, like, let's say you have a Monday workout, a Tuesday workout, but then you get like two easy days before your next workout. So I I asked, can runners of any age benefit from back-to-back workouts or is it something you would prescribe uniquely for younger runners? Because in the book, he talks a lot about like cross-country runners and so they tend to be younger in college. Yeah, I, th- that I think that's pretty interesting because, you know, if you if you look at it from a, a I'm, I'm sort of a, a real beginner coach and if you look at it from, you know, coaching beginners, if you're a beginner coach and you're coaching beginner runners, um, you always think, Okay, hard day, easy day, hard day, rest day, or long day, rest day, and you don't think about back to backs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty cool seeing the back to back, and then you asking the question. So what did what did Jack have to to offer us from that point of view? He said some research has indicated that the peak of muscle soreness and fatigue c- comes worse two days later. Uh, than just the day after stress. So basically, uh, like the onset of um, of DOMS, which is the you know post workout muscle soreness that we all yeah. experience. Usually, yeah. the the day after your workout, and I've noticed this, like the day after the workout, it, you know, you might have some. Sometimes I feel great after the workout, and then the second day, uh, I like I'm sore. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hmm. You just said DOMS is post-workout muscle soreness oh no it's so delayed how, onset so muscle soreness sorry no, that was ugh, otherwise that it was... would be pawums or something like that <laughs> wouldn't it that's true wrong yes that wouldn't that wouldn't correspond to the letters sorry guys not very often i catch liz out but there yeah, did it <laughs> um okay yeah so he uh he continues to say uh, I tried using that information relative to training two days in a row rather than every other day and found it to work well with those whom I was coaching. I guess I just, just assumed that it was good for any age group. So I guess he doesn't really just use it for younger runners. Um, so maybe Sarah Hall is doing back-to-back workout days. Yeah. And maybe it, it depends on, you know, the distance you're doing and types of types of workouts that you're doing. And I'm assuming this is like more advanced runners. Like you wouldn't take a beginner and be like, well, we're just going to give you two workouts in a row (laughs) because I think they would probably hate you and they'd quit running. And that's not good for the sport. Now, is it? Also, if you give them the two days, the second day, they won't get doms until two days later. So you could sneak in a third day. And for Um, the third day, the doms wouldn't occur till two days later. So you'd have to do you could do a fourth day and you could just No, I, I think that it doesn't work like that. I don't think it does. <laughs> but nice try. Oh, we could test it on you. No, I, I don't think the uh I don't think the Miller the Miller uh the Miller running formula well, that's my no. surname, the Miller running formula is going to be very successful. So no. I think I'll stick with Jack. Um the, another thing that we we noticed in chapter 9 um was about taking breaks and um you know, taking breaks during, between sectors of, of, of workout or, or um, you know, mega sections of workout. And um, he did mention that, you know, if you're going to take a break between sort of training plans, um, 
you should take a minimum of two weeks, um, which I, I found a little bit sort of shocking because. Because you don't do that. No, I get I get antsy after about a week. <laughs> so if I've had a week off, I'm like, my wife makes me run. Because, okay. <laughs> because she says, uh, you're horrible to live with. Go and run. So, so I was quite surprised at the two weeks. But um, what did Jack have to offer us in terms of explaining the rationale for two weeks? So he said loss of fitness tapers off less after a couple weeks of no training. So two weeks off lets you feel a good bit less fit, but not losing much at that time. Um, so basically he means like, you're going to feel unfit after two weeks of not running, but you don't actually lose that much fitness. And he does um, kind of explain that in the book, because in the book, I think he says that you, sh- you can have as many as six weeks, but he doesn't recommend more than six weeks. And when I read six weeks, I was like, what? <laughs> That's a long time. Um, but I-, I know that, you know, we've read in some of the other books about taking breaks and it means not taking breaks because you're injured or because you're overtrained, but just taking a scheduled break where, you know, you kind of, um, that you're not injured, but let's say like your, your goal race is over. And before you start training for your next goal race, you take a couple of weeks off because it also helps you, um, I guess, stay mentally, like stay motivated and, uh, you know, stay kind of like wanting to wanting to push your limits, which, you know, sometimes you just need a a bit of a mental break more than a physical one from the whole, um, like always, you know, hammering track intervals and things like that. I still think I'm not going to take uh, probably the breaks that (laughs) I'm supposed to. Okay. We'll see. I'll have to get a note from my wife if I'm going to take, (laughs) you can forget, you can forget more than two weeks, I think. Um, but even a two week break is going to be tough for me. I think I was pretty interested in, um, talking to, um, Jack about, about, um, uh, sort of heat training versus altitude training, because everybody talks about altitude training and the benefits of altitude, certain altitudes, I think five to 7,000 feet is the, the sort of optimal target that, that people use for training and acclimatizing Mm -hmm. at, uh, you know, reduced oxygen availability and conditioning your blood to that. But we always say when we train in summer, you and I always say, Liz, or you always say to me, oh, heat is the poor man's altitude. Training in the heat is tough. And uh, well, I think I also, I read it in an article, um, I think on Outside Magazine's uh, website, I I read, um, you know, like heat training as poor man's altitude. So I wanted to see what uh, Jack Daniels thinks about that because he does talk about altitude training and all the benefits of altitude training. And we know the benefits of altitude training, but let's face it, Montreal is not at altitude. Even if you go to the top of Mount Royal, it's only 200 meters, I think, <laughs> from sea level. Yeah, we've got no altitude basically near us. No. Um, so, but we do have heat in summer. We do. So you work with what you got. I think one of the things Jack make, makes clear in his book is um, if you got too much stress on you, like too high an altitude or too hot uh, a temperature, in fact, it's going to slow you down. And so you're going to run slower. So your muscles are not going to get the conditioning. Maybe your circulatory system is going to get a conditioning. Mm-hmm. And so the, there's a sort of balance point. You've got to be able to run fast enough to 
to push your muscular training envelope. But at the same time, if you've got a stressor on you like altitude that your body can acclimatize to in terms of your blood, uh, your blood and your respiratory system, your cardiovascular, basically. Jack kind of agrees that um, heat is going to, um, you know, provide that stress, um, which is going to reduce probably the amount of oxygen available to your system because your blood is working into your skin to try to cool you down. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're getting less delivery to your muscles. But he also says that um, he, he actually says that he prefers altitude very much more than heat because it's, it's miserable in the heat. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess um, y- you might agree with that. I kind of like the heat, but I have to say, like, it's not really good for performance. Yeah. But I do like hot yeah. weather in it's Montreal in yeah. the summer. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you do like the heat and you do perform better because as it gets hotter, you get better and better and I get worse and worse. No, I think I get worse, but by less of an amount than other yeah. people. I think yeah. that's because I because obviously I can't run my fastest 5k time when it's, you know, plus 30. Um, I mean, historically I have never done that, but at the same time, sometimes I will place better in a race when it's hot, I guess, probably just cause I. Relative can, to the field. Yeah. I can deal with it better. So. Yeah. You did. De- you're definitely a preferable hot weather runner. I don't know how you do that. I go much better in cooler, uh, mm-hmm. environments. And I tend to overheat in hot, in hot weather. I always find that I'm a bit better than you in the cold because you have to wear like 15 layers of jumpers and things in order it's to It's so warm. miserable. <laughs> so it's hard for you to run fast with all that, with all that clothing on. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough because, you know, I'm usually wearing like two pairs of tights in the winter and I mean, I can barely move and that's without the, you know, the, the two layers that I have under my jacket and. Yeah. And my like two sets of toques on my head. I mean, sometimes I I can barely move. I like my running pace in the winter is so slow compared to the summer. Sometimes I'm running, uh, you know, let's say our, um, marathon pace, you know, is, uh, supposed to be four fifteen if we were on a run that sub three hour marathon. Yeah. Per kilometer. And if I, if I run in the, in, you know, in the summer or, you know, when I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt, it's doable in the winter with the same effort, I'm running like five minutes per kilometer. <laughs> so well, the hard. answer is just wear shorts and a t-shirt. No, uh, it's uh, no, not in the winter. <laughs> so uh, I guess the last question that we asked, um, Jack Daniels was what are some common errors that you have seen non elite runners doing in training? Um, because he doesn't just train elites, he coaches uh, runners of all levels. Yeah. And we figured most people who are listening to this will be a, a, like more likely to be non elite runners. I think Jack jumped straight on to the fact that trying to run faster than the training prescribes you to run. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll talk about that a little bit in terms of how the training works. He's very much in favor of trying to do the minimum amount of training to get the maximum results. More is not necessarily better and harder is not necessarily better. There's a point at which you don't get physiological benefit from going faster or longer or harder. Mm -hmm. And all you're doing is building up your chance for injury when you get into repeated training. So he's very much on trying to limit the pace to the target pace or the distance to the target distance 
having said that, once you get start looking at these programs, they still look pretty darn tough to me. Yeah, um, I guess. Uh, I mean, it depends which one. Well, yeah, they're all tough in their own way, because uh, I have to say, after spending the winter doing track indoors on Mondays and uh, then running a 1500 on the track, like I have to say that 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 level of pain is very different from a marathon. <laughs> So although the race is like five minutes long, um, it, it, it's, it's still hard, but just it's a different hard. So I guess you just have to pick which hard you prefer to deal with. Yeah, it's kind of a different sensation altogether, but it's good to mix it up as well. I think it, it helps. There's a cross benefit. Also, I think it, it stops you from getting into a rut with your training and it stops you from getting becoming sort of a one trick pony. You maintain your speed as well as your endurance. And you're not trading off all your speed and just getting endurance because you're that type of guy Mm -hmm. or the other way around. Yeah. So I guess uh, those were the questions that we asked um, Daniels, but uh, you know, the book is extensive. Uh, The beginning of the book actually starts with, uh, with, uh, with Daniels telling us the essentials of running success, which according to him are four things inherent ability, intrinsic motivation, opportunity, and direction. That's sort of a starting point. Um, I mean, inherent ability is kind direction. Of- you should run clockwise or kind of clockwise <laughs> around the track. I think th- he just meant- to clarify direction, <laughs> he means kind of coaching how you're directed Yeah. in terms of your efforts. So how you're coached and the benefits of having a coach and being coached. And opportunity is, is a little bit in the same direction. It's, you know, it's like everything else, except in running opportunity is probably all around us. Whereas in some other sports opportunity, maybe might not be available because of, uh, you know, financial status. Like, let's say, let's say playing hockey is really expensive. And if your parents can't afford it, like you might not play hockey, whereas running is, is pretty accessible. Um, uh, you know, unless like you're the school you go to, which, you know, when I was in, uh, let's say our grade school didn't really do any running. Uh, but in high school, we had a teacher that was willing to take us to like a couple of races for cross country season. So that's an example of sort of like opportunity. So I had that opportunity, but if it wasn't for that one teacher, I wouldn't have had that opportunity, but running does have, you know, it's, it's pretty accessible, especially if you're living in some of the countries where it's really popular, like in the U S I think every school has cross country season. That's what it seems like. At least it's, uh, essential to success. Cause if you've never had the opportunity to try, then you, I mean, you don't even know if you're going to be successful. Yeah. I guess some very simple things that he, that he puts into his training tips is basically you need to recognize that your body re- reacts to stress. And what you're looking to do is apply the correct type and amount of stress to your body uh, in a specific manner. The specificity of how you do that is important. Mm-hmm. And overstress is bad. So recovery is a factor um, that, you, that you need to do that. But basically, um, if you want to get to a new level of performance, you should be mindful that you're probably going to have to get yourself into a new training level of stress at some stage mm-hmm. and, and, and get and get comfortable with that as best you can, which when you think about it, you go, yeah, that makes sense. But also when you look at it, you go, how many people are just turning up and going, well, I wish it was better, but they're not doing the thing 
mm-hmm. which is Actually, to find how to push their envelope a little bit. I think another thing that uh, we tend to do, and you know, some of this might be coaching philosophy, because uh, sometimes you'll be coached in this way, um, is is that instead of training at the at the speed that you're at, which it, it seems like Jack Daniels is a proponent of that, because when he tells you when he teaches you about the V dot um, table and how to look up your time, it's based on your current like most current uh, race times where not like your aspired race finishing time so yeah which we we've concluded that's the sort of error that we made with respect to our training program last time around exactly yeah we should have used paces that we're at and not paces we want to get to and the way to get there is to be able to string together the training um without it being too stressful so we're recovering from it and then we should get faster ramp it up yeah Uh, We should get faster as we get, get like trained throughout the season. And the way that, you know, you're getting faster is that you do a race and you prove your new level of fitness. So that's kind of uh, the way that um, Jack Daniels wants you to use your, like his, um, his V dot tables, which I guess maybe we can talk about the V dot tables. Cause um, you know, like V dot is, uh, is like VO two max. Uh, but not really. So the way that you find out what your V dot is, is you don't look at your Garmin. And if your Garmin predicts that your, um, your VO two max right now is 56, then you don't go into the table under 56. Uh, (laughs) It's a little bit of, um, of a backwards, you know, your Garmin watch, it tells you how much your VO2 max is right now. And then it's going to predict your race times. And I don't know about you, but my race times are never what they predict. They're much slower. <laughs> like I can't run what, what Garmin's telling me I should be able to run. And I think, um, Alan, what does your Garmin tell you? My Garmin tells me all kinds of things, um, <laughs> but mostly it tells me that I'm unproductive. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. not a lot of fun. You, you, you sweat like crazy and do a, a- <laughs> tough training session and you check your Garmin and it says unproductive. I know. It's really motivating. Um, I wish Garmin, uh, if there's anybody from Garmin listening, could you put a, you need to put a motivational mode mm-hmm. on your Garmin that, I don't know, chips a few seconds off your, um, off your actual measured times and says, way to go. <laughs> so that when you're feeling that you need some encouragement, you know, you switch to motivational mode and you go, oh, that was a great session. Look at my numbers. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, um, I think I think the thing is with with VO two max, everybody kind of has heard this VO two max, and the basic idea of VO two max is that it's a feature of your lung volume, your ability to move um, volume of of air, um, but also be able to use it through your system. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily where, whether you can translate that perfectly into running racing performance. And yeah, I think because- what Jack Daniels was trying to do with his V dot, uh, which he kind of invented or researched and, and described for the first time, he's the, like the originator of it, was come out with a, a formula that would, you know, use the idea of VO2 max, but applied to racing rather than lung measurement. Yeah, because what he was trying to do is get rid of the the factor of running economy, because, you know, your VO2 max will only translate to a certain speed 
depending on your running economy, which is something that is also variable that can change and can be different for different people. Um, and I guess you can improve it, but you know, like you don't really know what it is. So it's hard to, it's hard then to use your VO2 max for anything. Um, so what Jack Daniels does is he developed these tables, uh, the VDOT tables with race times. Um, and it was like through research. So, so basically, uh, I guess he had uh, lots of athletes contribute their data to this and he knew their VO2 maxes and then he knew their race times. And I don't know exactly how he he made it into tables, but what you do is he makes it super easy for us because what you do is you go out and you run a 5k race, or you take your most recent race time from, uh, you know, whatever you did most recently, and you go into the table and you look up what your, what your V dot value is. And then your V dot value, you use that throughout the book and all the other tables to find out what your training paces are, depending on, you know, if you're in the, uh, if you're doing like 800 meter training or whatever, they all have tables where you can go and um, line up your V dot value with, you know, what paces you, you should be running uh, for your, for your 400 meter repeats, let's say. So the only, the only thing that he uh, does mention on top of that is when you're using it, like, let's say you're trying to predict marathon training paces, uh, it's probably better to use a half marathon uh, race time rather than like a near, 5K. As near as possible to where you're targeting. Yeah. So um, I remember looking up my V dot with my, my most recent 5K time, which is no longer my most recent 5K time because um, I since had COVID. Uh, so now I feel like I'm starting all over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but let's pretend. Okay, let's pretend. So I I, I ended up running a 5K in 1859. And so my V dot was 53. So, yeah. um, so, so that means that, like, in theory, had I not had COVID, I could have yeah. gone then to, you know, the other the training plans and, uh, and use that V dot to find out what paces I should be training at. And and um, if I remember rightly, I think my V dot was 53, but my 53 is not the same as your 53 because the, are they different from men and women? Uh, no. So they're, no, they're not, the, okay. they're not, they're not, but there, there are, um, there is a table that differentiates between men and women, but what he's doing is saying like, um, like he's categorizing runners as, you know, your average, if you're, let's say a woman between this V dot and that V dot value. And, but for men, it's like your average, if you're a little bit higher. So I think you were looking at that because the V dot doesn't, doesn't differentiate between men and women. It's really just like your race time corresponds to your V dot value and you use that. And then you can use all the training plans in the book. Yeah. Basically once you've got that number and you've got a good handle on that number and you know, if you're not sure about it, you can then check it again. Say, okay, if I did a 5K, um, what sort of 10K time would that predict me to do? And can I do that? And what sort of half marathon? And that's what I did. I went, mm-hmm. I went straight to the marathon. Um, yeah, said, me too. <laughs> does, does it tell me I can run a three-hour marathon? Um, you probably did the same. And I did. Unfortunately, quite, it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't quite. Actually, it reflects what we basically did. Oh, it says you will run, I think... A little over three hours. Yeah. So, sort of what we did. So 
which is not what we want to do again. Yeah, but we're all about improving. So, yes. but it reflects accurately where we were or where we have just come from. And also we're smarter now. So we think that, you know, the next time around when we start our marathon training program in July, we're going to use the training paces that we're at instead of the training paces we want to be at and just, you know, yeah. break our heads over that and um, yeah. end up like getting injured like I did last year. <laughs> yeah, we're smarter, but I'm also older. Your, your age, relative speaking, you haven't aged, but, you know, I'm aging rapidly now. Anyway, coming back forget us for a minute coming back to v dot the v dot then enables you to go into um the tables and select your paces give you very precise some um, paces to train at be it that you're doing an easy run or a marathon pace run or a threshold run or an interval pace run or a repetition reps run it then gives you the the mm-hmm. pace you should be running if you're doing let's say i don't know a 200 meter rep it tells you how many seconds you should be doing your 200 meter reps in so if you're either a bit nerdy and you want to design your own program or you're a bit specific like like we are um, and you want to try and make sure your program is targeting an improvement in a very specific way for a specific goal when you start looking at your training program you can make sure that your that your paces for each training session that you do is um appropriate to your level um which i guess is the whole crux of daniel's running formula yeah and it it's um it actually corresponds well to what what you know ben rosario told us when we talked about how we well didn't quite fail our marathon training but i yeah, I kind of failed it, but you didn't really. Um, but it was because we were training too fast. We were trying to train at a pace that we had actually never done because what we wanted to do was race at a pace that we had never raced at, which mm-hmm. seemed very logical for us at the time. But yeah. after speaking with um, with Matt and Ben uh, about their book. Yeah, so I think, I think probably we have to start slower, but we're going to have to... By the end of our training cycle, we're going to have to be at those training speeds. Mm-hmm. If we're not, and we're not able to get to that point, that tells us that we're not going to be ready. I guess you're right. Um, so I guess we just have to cross our fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> the idea is that we don't get we don't get fatigued because I felt um, I was just slightly fatigued, maybe um, going into the race. And so the idea will be, you know, if we train at a more realistic actual pace and then we gradually progress to um, a more targeted three-hour marathon pace we won't fatigue ourselves so much and then we'll be fresher on race day and we'll we'll kick ass that'll be amazing so uh, there was a, a really neat uh, point system for monitoring training intensity uh, so, you know, like I think many of us have heard of sort of the, uh, you know, the, the zero, the one to 10 scale about, uh, what you thought your training intensity was RPE, which is yeah. rate of perceived exertion. So I remember using that with my, um, my previous coach, we used to write it into our spreadsheet. So, you know, you'd get your, like, you'd do your workout and you'd put in like your usual data, like your, okay, what speeds did you do your intervals in and all that. But then he had always an RPE box. And I always found that box so hard to, um, to evaluate because, um, you know, it's very subjective, but 
it's meant to be that way. If you felt like the training was hard, even though maybe it wasn't supposed to be hard. Well, I mean, that's how you felt. So, so that's what you should write. But in um, Daniel's uh, way to monitor training intensity, he actually uh, puts some extra guidelines. It's actually like a whole point system uh, that you multiply by the number of minutes per week that you're running. So you kind of get like a global number for the week. And basically like each minute at a certain, uh, at a certain intensity is going to value like, let's say more points based on, uh, based on like what intensity you're running at. And, uh, so I guess the goal of that is sort of to see, uh, to evaluate like how many points per week you're getting of training, um, and it'll be more specific because it doesn't just consider mileage or just minutes because we all know that you can run 60 minutes easy, but or you can run a, a 60 minute long like workout and like you don't feel the same after both of them. Like Yeah, so instead of just saying, <laughs> well, you know, I ran 60 minutes. No, you give yourself more points for the second one that you just mentioned. And then you look at your index and you see your index is higher. Mm -hmm. So, and basically he actually even breaks it down. If you're planning as a coach, if you're planning work, uh, like uh, workouts for your athletes, uh, based on their level, like if they're in high school, it's between so many and so many points. And, you know, if they're sort of like a college runner, they could handle up to so many points. And then if they're sort of like, uh, later, like an adult, uh, that's been training for a while, then you can go, you can go higher. Uh, so that was actually pretty interesting. Cause you know, I mean, even as runners, like it's an interesting way to calculate training load and, and it makes a lot of sense, but we probably didn't explain it very well. So you're going to have to read that portion in the book. Cause there's actually a, a, like a little table with the values and stuff. So I guess you'd have to reproduce a, an Excel spreadsheet to, to sort of use that. And calculate your number of points i think that's probably something that you're going to do and that i'm not going to do <laughs> um i'll probably just write something in my log that says oh it felt hard <laughs> you know or wow it felt comfortable even though it was a fast training session you know mm. and that would kind of be it <laughs> you know once you get a spreadsheet set up though like the the calculations do themselves if it's if it's set up well you're not convinced. Okay. Set the spreadsheet up and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try and put the numbers in. Okay. Um, yeah. We need to try to do the things the, the problem I have is, you know, I go, oh, I'll set in numbers and calculations. And then what am I going to do with it? Maybe I'll just let it slide. My go by feel is probably enough. And, you know, occasionally we get coaches who tell you that say, well, mm -hmm. look, you probably know, you know what your, um, because you've done enough running over enough years, you know what your lactate threshold pace should be. You can feel it in your body. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably pretty close, but I tend to be a bit lazy and go, yeah, all right, I'll just do that. Because um, that's the easiest way through. When in fact, what I've got to do is I've got to, and we all have to do this, I've got to say to myself, I need to do the thing that I'm not doing that's going to take me to the next level to the next inch, to the next second. Because if you don't, why would you be surprised that you don't progress? Um, you know, Very if you true. always do what you always did, you will always get what you always got. So well one said. of the things I think I've learned through our 
through our podcasting is is very much that mm-hmm. i need to eat more protein shouldn't just go all oh, that nutrition stuff you know yeah i'm not too keen I need to eat more protein so let's get exactly. on it let's get on it Exactly. I was very proud of myself. I had protein in my trunk today for after the run. Yeah. And I mean, I've been so good at it that I've been embarrassing you. I know. I saw you, saw you waving your protein drink at me out your car window as you were driving <laughs> off uh, the other night. Yeah. I was just making up for the time. Oh, look when on, I've got my protein. <laughs> I, and you probably had yours. You just didn't wave it around because like you, you've, I mean, ever since you started this whole protein thing last summer, I mean, I'm impressed. Sometimes I forget my protein and you never forget your protein unless you ran out. There was that one time you ran out. <laughs> Jack doesn't tell us about protein supplements, but he does tell us about a whole bunch of other things. Um, altitude training we've, we've sort of touched on you know, five to 7,000 feet. If you live in Flagstaff, somewhere in Colorado, somewhere like that, all I can say is I'm insanely jealous. Um, mm, yeah. Because it, it, we, don't, we don't really have that available to us. We don't. But, you know, one of the things that they do, um, you know, like the athletes that do go train at altitude is sometimes they will go to sea level to do uh, workouts so that they can hit paces. Um, you know, when you listen to other podcasts where they interview elites, they, they kind of, you know, they talk about the, those things that sometimes they go, they'll like be at altitude, but then they'll, let's say for one workout in the week, they'll drive two hours to get somewhere to, um, to closer to sea level, or maybe just less altitude so that they could run fast because the altitude, um, you know, although you're getting all these adaptations, like you still want to have the leg speed. And I guess, we can reproduce that with the heat training because, you know, on hot days, like sometimes we run early, so it's less hot. So we could run faster. I mean, I guess not exactly the same thing because sometimes it's hot in the morning too, but <laughs> there are ways around it. But I think the thing is what we see is we see, um, we see people training at altitude, getting acclimatized to altitude and then doing test runs by dropping down, mm-hmm. coming down out of the mountains and then doing a test run hard to see you know if their conditioning is working and our version of that really is we're going to train through the summer and then we're going to attack our race in the fall when it's cooler Mm -hmm. and hopefully we'll get training benefit that we can reproduce on a day where we don't have the training stress uh, which is the heat you know we'll get a cool day and uh, that's that's probably more accessible to other people Mm -hmm. Um, you know, who don't, if you don't have mountains, that's what you can do. Yep. Um, he talks about treadmill training, Yeah. Uh, which uh, I don't think he talks about in the third edition. Uh, but, yeah. you know, he actually goes into quite a bit of detail and he talks even about uh, like calibrating your treadmill, yeah. which calibrate um, your treadmill. Yeah. I've never actually taken the time to do this because I used to use the treadmill at work. Cause I don't actually have a treadmill What's and the, I don't have a treadmill and I don't have any work. So I don't oh. have even <laughs> access to a treadmill. So I, I read the chapter, but I wasn't paying a huge amount of attention to how to calibrate a treadmill because I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it, but mm-hmm. it's the first time I've seen um, yeah. some instructions on how to calibrate a treadmill, you know, measuring your making a mark on your um, carpet or whatever you call it a belt. There you go. Yep. And um, then measuring the distance and then measuring how time, 
how often it comes around so you know exactly what the speed of it is. Yep. Um, and then you look at the pace on, and see if it corresponds to what yeah. it's supposed to say. Um, and he, I, he does also say that you should probably be running on the treadmill when you're counting because, uh, like you're running on the, yeah, we'll on the mat can, yeah. might slow it down or might create, um, like friction. So it might not have the same result. I think in general, like, even if you don't calibrate your treadmill, most people tend to use the same treadmill. I know for me, I'm such a creature of habit. I used to go to the gym and I would always pick the same treadmill. It was like, there were four treadmills and I would pick the third one from the window. Why and am I, I not surprised, Liz? Yeah, you shouldn't be very surprised. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> and so I would be alone in the gym and I'd pick the third one from the window or I'd be with other people. Sometimes it happened that somebody else would be there already running on that treadmill and I'd be so like, tell me, oh no, so, now what do I do? <laughs> yeah, so tell me, if you go into the um, gym yes, and there's only one person on the treadmill and there are four <laughs> treadmills, but the person on the treadmill is on your treadmill. Yeah. What do you do? Do you hang around and like pretend to lift some <laughs> weights or something? You're kind of waiting for your treadmill to come available. No, I usually don't have time for that because I'm planning on doing a workout that's pretty long. So then I have to just go on another treadmill. But what I was going to say what, was what you're saying is you would if you had time. If, if you had I time, had time, you'd time hang yeah. Around, wouldn't you? I probably would. I'd probably just do something <laughs> else because, you know, chances are that that other person is not going to run for more than 30 minutes no. anyway. <laughs> no. So I would have just waited around, but I usually don't have time for that. Um, so I take another treadmill. But all that to say is if you're using kind of the same treadmill, I think, I mean, this is just my logic, it's always going to be off by the same amount. So let's yeah. say your pace on the treadmill starts to get easier then you can, you know, you can bump it up a little bit. And yeah. I mean, it's reflective of you getting faster anyway, but just the yeah. pace might not be the absolute pace. Yeah, If you have a number at. on your treadmill, you can go for a faster number, but don't necessarily believe the number. Yeah. But you can say, well, this number is a better number than the one from, you know, a month ago. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing I would say about treadmill running, just because like I've done the transition a couple of times is um, like when you haven't run on a treadmill for a long time, it feels hard. Like it feels harder to hit the paces that you run on the road. Um, it's cause like, it's kind of not the same way to run. I'm not really sure what it is, but it's just, it's uh, it's a strange feeling. And sometimes it feels like it feels easier than running on the road, but I guess usually that's in the winter for me where it's not very easy to run on the road. Yeah, to me, it feels very sterile. I mean, it's very consistent and um, it's a little bit more forgiving than a, than a road, um, but mm -hmm. it's as uniform as a road. So, you know, it's very consistent from that point of view. Other people would have another word for consistent. Like boring? Which, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so the thing is I used the treadmill strategically. It was really to do, there was one winter I wanted to do that around the Bay 30 K, which is um, like a, a pretty popular race in, uh, in Ontario it's in March. So it means like you're training in like January, February and um, the, the pacing when there's always snow on the ground is not as great for us here in Montreal. So uh, I had used that year, I had used the treadmill two days a week on the Mondays and the Wednesdays, really specifically for the workouts that had paces. Uh, and so that's why I was using it. So I really used it for that. And I, I tried to think of it as 
an advantage because when you're on the treadmill, you can have your Gatorade bottle right there handy. You can, you know, have a gel there waiting for you. If you're doing like, like a midweek, uh, like long tempo run and you can practice fueling on the run and that's going to be a benefit for your race. So I kind of tried to use it as, um, as also like fueling training and think of it kind of positively. Yeah, my version of that would be, well, actually, when you're feeling on the run during a marathon, you need to be in a marathon condition. So you need to be outside, um, subject to the variables that outside gives you and mm-hmm. practice fueling like that. But, you know, to each his own. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, that's OK. I quite enjoyed looking out the window at the blizzard outside and being like, I'm here running in my shorts yeah. with my Gatorade right beside I got to admit, there were some days this winter where I wished we'd had a treadmill. Me too, since I'm not currently going to any office. So the training plans. So the last part of the book has um, training plans for every distance that you'd possibly want to race, basically. I mean, not the sprints. So if you're a sprinter. Yeah, but from I guess the endurance distance upwards. So from 800 meters up through marathon, ultra running, cross-country, triathlon. I was particularly interested in marathon because yeah. that's where we're sort of targeting. Okay. Um, but you've done some 1,500-meter racing. Uh, I did. I did. And, um, yeah, and I, what I did was I actually – was using the time for my 1500. So I ended up running my fastest one was 505. And so I actually used it to look up um, my my V dot and then how fast I could run a 5k because my first outdoor race was a 5k. And it was, it corresponded almost exactly uh, to, to, the, to the race time I ended up doing. So it was good for that. I didn't follow the training plan though, because I was, um, uh, I just, I joined another local group and yeah, your I coach was giving their, you a plan basically. Yeah. So. I went, I went to their Monday track training, so I didn't follow it, the, any plans from the book. Um, so I don't really have any experience with that, but, um, um, I know that we were, we were really, uh, thinking to use the, uh, the advanced marathon plan again, just because, I mean, we did think that some of the, uh, some of the things in that plan, I think we benefited from, like those, like just the frequency of medium long runs in that plan, like was something and the, and the paces of the long runs, not being just an easy pace. Those were things we had never done in the past. So, uh, we were thinking we were going to use that plan again, but, uh, when you were looking at the marathon plan in Daniel's book, what did, what did you think? Uh, I guess I haven't looked at it in enough detail to, um, to know for sure, whether it's, you know, something we could, consider but i think we should um there are there are we should look at it in in detail there are plans for um different mileages fortunately for us we don't have to um worry about what our target time is going to be because we know what it what that is we don't have we don't need to worry about what our current fitness level is because we'll be able to understand that i think quite well um so those things are givens for us or or available to us then we need to decide how many miles are we going to try and more miles is good for you. Too at many level, miles. At our level, mm-hmm. more miles is good for you. They're like, you can't get, I don't know about you, but I can't get into the upper levels where, you know, 
you're almost doing too many miles. I think uh, I'm not comfortable at that. So we'd have to, we have to choose probably between two programs in terms of mileage. Uh, we're going to go for, you know, about a 90K a week or 113K a week or 140K a week, something like that. Um, yeah. I think like for me, because I know that the Fitzinger plan maxed out at 140K um, and I'm able to do a 140K week. I just don't think I could do consistent 140K week yeah. every week. So if it maxes out at 140K, I think that's doable for me at least. But I don't think it's doable for me to like plan to be running 140K throughout the whole plan. The The other thing though with the um, Daniel's plans is like they're all 18 weeks. So um, I think, I mean, from 18 weeks that we did last year, like I felt like 18 weeks was a, a long time to be specifically training for one thing, not to mention that this year we registered for that Quebec mega trail, um, tra trail race. And it's uh, like July 1st. And so already our 18, we would be like two weeks into our 18 week plan. If we're aiming for the Toronto waterfront marathon, which is the one that we're signed up for. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess we'd have to look and see if we can just skip the first two weeks or... or. I think I'm going to condition myself for the 50K trail ultra and that, that'll enable me to skip the first few weeks of the training. Yeah. I also just found that 18 weeks was too long for me, at least. I'd also like to um, look at um, maybe the training programs in, in Matt Fitzgerald and uh, Ben Rosario's book. Um, train like a pro or run like a pro, even if you're slow. Um, and maybe compare and contrast what we've done with, with Fitzinger's advanced marathon program with what Daniels would suggest to us and then see, because what I liked about what I saw in that program was the ver the variation. Okay. I, I, I felt maybe the advanced marathon program, because it was tough, it also felt a bit repetitive because it was tough. So you're going, oh, no, another one of these. <laughs> <laughs> I remember at the end, our uh, training partner, Guillaume, he was um, he was not looking forward to those those midweek medium long runs. Actually, there no. were wasn't just midweek. Uh, it was midweek and end of the week and weekend like those medium long runs. Like I felt like we were always doing a medium long mm. run. <laughs> How many of those did we do? Sheesh. In summary, uh, I don't know with respect to Daniels. I, I suspect it has some good things to offer and, and is very precise in the way it allows you to put it together. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some analysis, I think. Yeah, I, I guess we should look at all the plans that we have access to now with, with all the books we've read. Um, I kind of like the idea of redoing Fitzinger because, you know, when I had done the Hansen plan, I had done it twice in a row. I, like, I feel like, also because I didn't really thrive the first time around. And now I feel like, uh, you know, like I would approach it in a smarter way. So I think maybe I would still get something out of that plan that I didn't get the first time around. And also just because, you know, it's, it's a bit, uh, it removes some of the variables. So, you know, we know that we did the Fitzinger plan. And in my case, it was, um, it wasn't, 
you know, I, I didn't thrive. Like I was injured for part of it. And, um, I wasn't able to necessarily do marathon pace, uh, like for the, some of the longer marathon pace runs, like the 23 K, uh, I bonked at, you know, 10. So, um, there there's all those things, but, uh, but I feel like we got a certain result. And now if we, if we change the plan and let's say, you know, we again, don't attain three hours. So then now I feel like we don't know if it's because we changed something in our training. Cause I feel like the last time we didn't attain three hours, it was really the day it was the weather. It was very windy. I think we would have been really close if it hadn't been so windy and, and the Fitzinger plan got us there. So that's kind of, that's kind of my thinking is, is maybe try the Fitzinger plan again, but we can look at all of them since we have all the books. Yeah. I mean, we didn't, we didn't mention um, the one we just done recently, which was Hal Higdon's marathon uh, techniques, which also contains some stuff. So we've got plenty to go out there in terms of devising our program. Mm -hmm. And also I think we have to have a more flexible approach to it. I think uh, you, you have a program and you figure, well, okay, this is a prescription. And if I follow this exactly as it's given, I'll get the result exactly as I desire. But actually human beings are not like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll get a cold or you'll have a, an off week or, or a non-week even, or we'll get, a, well, we shouldn't get a snowstorm, but you know, that's, <laughs> you, you get, you can get bad weather, really bad weather. And then you go, okay. So like a super hot, humid, that's probably what, yeah, we got some of those really hot days. And I remember some of them, you know, we said, okay, well, we'll go on the slower end of the range of paces because each each pace was actually a range. But I think maybe like we maybe we should have gone even slower than that on the hot days because some of those runs um, like we felt pretty, uh, pretty terrible at the end. So Anyway, there are plenty of programs and there are several, I think, marathon programs in Daniel's in terms of uh, offering us some alternatives and we'll need to compare and contrast that to what we've done so far and the other things that we've read mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day we'll have to do a lot of work we'll get very tired and i think uh, irrespective of which program we do there are there are no programs where you can skip that can't wait me neither it's it was fun last year and it'll be fun again uh, this time around i feel like i'm going to be coming in uh, with less miles but better prepared yeah, me too. I think that was part of maybe our our problem. We were so worried about having the volume before even starting the plan yeah. that, um, and I think that was unnecessary. Yeah, we did probably did more miles than we could sustain right to the to marathon day. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe do you want to give your opinion on the on the book overall? Yeah, just a general commentary on the book. Um, Daniel's Running Formula, fourth edition. Well, first of all, if you've ever wondered what pace you need to run for what kind of workout, um, relax. All your answers are here for every kind of runner, for every kind of run, for every kind of training. Now you can know what pace you should be running. Of course, you still got to go out and run it, but, uh, you know, the book can't do the runs for you. It can only tell you what's good and uh, what you should be doing. Jack Daniels tells you that every workout should have a purpose. And it's great advice because it's basically trying to stop you from overtraining. Don't do more than you have to follow the, follow the prescribed pace, 
for your ability, but also it stops you from what I call mailing it in. So you can't go, oh, yeah, I'm just going to have a nice, easy run. Um, it'll all be fine. Yeah, come on. Yeah, there's there's a program here. You know, you've got to don't do too much, but don't mail it in either. The charts are, once you get your head around VDOT, the charts are super easy to follow. And the table, the table covers all the distances. So, you know, what I've said uh, here in my notes is suddenly whole new worlds are running up and up to up and up to you. You can look at the table and go, ooh, if I was an 800 meter runner and I wanted to race in her meters, I should be able to do this. Ooh, ooh, I've never done a marathon, but according to my training here, if I was to train, I should be able to do this time for a marathon. Um, of course, the, the word should is the operative word because you've still got to do all the training, but because you've now got a V dot and you've got a table, you can actually look up. Okay. So in theory, I should be able to do this and it's realistic. We know that it works because we've, we've seen it across some of our numbers and it's, and it's been built over years and years and countless numbers of athletes uh, with hard data. So there it is for, for, for people. Basically all the training principles in part one are, I would say, wise and, and based on a huge scientific basis. And, and also they're then tested in practice over a long period of time. So not only have you got some science, some information that you can use, but it's proven. It's not like a new, hey, look, there's this new thing. Try this. It's called VDOT. Um, no, if you use it, it kind of tells you exactly where you could be. So from that point of view, it's, it's, it's super interesting. You know, and, and I heard all about it and thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, a boring thing full of tables, but it's not at all. Yeah, it does have tables, but they're, they're all useful. I've actually seen some plans online um, and the plans actually, they make a lot more sense after reading part one of the book. And I would say if you're going to buy the book, even if you're saying I'm buying the book for the plans in the back, I think reading the first section is essential to really understand how to use them. Um, because although the V dot number, like we mentioned, might represent your VO2 max, uh, and that's what I initially thought it was. Uh, you know, you actually get it from your race time and not your VO2 max test if you've ever had one, which I, I never have. But, you know, because now Garmin predicts your VO2 max, I, you know, figure that what's on the Garmin is my V dot. But no, that's not that's not where it comes from. And it really makes a lot of sense after you read the first section of the book. So uh, I'd say that um, that you you do have to read part one before going on to part two and doing the uh, the programs. There's um, a lot of important information that anyone that's wondering uh, about treadmill running and how it'll affect your training, other topics. Uh, so living in Canada, it was good to know that doing workouts on a treadmill can actually help you get the speed you need for a spring race in case it's impossible to do that outside. So, you know, sometimes we worry like, well, is treadmill running because it's not the same, will it translate? And actually it, it'll be helpful because you'll be able to get the leg speed that you're not able to get outside if you live somewhere where there's winter and snow cover on the ground um, and you're wearing too many layers like me. So there are a lot of uh, helpful charts 
like the VDOT chart on page 77, which is also race time equivalency chart. So you can look up, like Alan mentioned, uh, a recent 5K time and then see what you could be able to do for a 10K. Um, you do have to train for the 10K, but it gives you a, 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 good, uh, a good starting point. Um, something to aim for for your 10k if like let's say you haven't done one recently or maybe you've never done one at all so um, the training plan section is extensive uh, each distance has plans for several different weekly volume levels you know the only section that doesn't really have a specific plan it's more like guidelines is the cross-country training and it kind of makes sense like I been on a cross-country team I kind of understand and uh, you know, I, like I saw how it was related, you know, he mentions sort of, you know, you need to run up hills and things like that. And so it's hard to prescribe paces for those, that kind of training. So what he does is it's more guidelines, which is, which is really what you need in cross country. So the book is really good in, in that respect as, you know, he's really adapting the training plans are not kind of like, copy paste and adjust volumes throughout the distances they're really you know specific to the type of event um most of the events you know are are kind of similar like training for 5k 10k uh, is kind of similar uh, to training for like longer distances on the road except that you'll have to maybe run more volume but i mean training for an 800 is completely different uh, training for cross country is completely different. Training for a triathlon is completely different. And he does do a good, um, he does do a good job with those plans. The book will appeal to anyone who enjoys getting into the details of exercise physiology. So if you really like those, the, you know, all the reasons why and why running certain paces and um, why VDOT works, you're going to love this book. Uh, but you don't need to necessarily be an exercise physiologist to understand, like the language is easy to understand. So, um, you know, you don't have to shy away from that. It's, uh, it's easy to read and everything is explained. Uh, I like that the book goes from 800 meter distance all the way past the marathon to the ultra distance. Not many books talk about training for shorter track distances. And this one kind of does it all. Uh, you know, usually like a book will really focus on one distance, which, which does have his advantages as well, because, you know, like you've seen in some of the other training books, uh, they talk a lot, let's say specifically for the marathon. Well, there's a lot to talk about, uh, from, you know, testing your gear and all those kinds of things. Uh, this book is really just a uh, sort of training. So, um, it does, it does a good job on the, you know, explaining training and paces and why, uh, training at those paces and helping you establish your paces. So really good for that. All in all, a book that we're going to keep on our shelf and probably dip into. Definitely. So thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A great big thank you to the publisher Human Kinetics for providing a review copy of the book. We didn't comment on the actual book itself, but it's actually like all human kinetic books. Uh, a really nice book to sort of have and hold uh, the tables, the the print uh, friendly, um, the images and graphs all nicely laid out. Um, great stuff there. A big thanks to Jack Daniels for uh, responding to our, our correspondence. So we're able to put in some of his actual feedback into our um, podcast, even though um, we weren't able to have him present with us online. Um, so that was great. Um, if you'd like to leave us feedback about how we can improve the podcast, 
or want to suggest a book that you'd like us to review in future episodes, please leave us a comment on social media. We are running book reviews on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter we are reviews underscore running. Please also follow us on social media to find out about new episodes when they are released or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. I guess I should also mention our uh, Buy Me A Coffee uh, page. If you haven't heard, we are now on Buy Me A Coffee and uh, you can go on to, all you got to do is go on to the general Buy Me A Coffee page, look for running book reviews and you'll probably find our page there. Thank you to Susan who left us some coffees um, last week. Uh, much appreciated. We appreciate your little encouragements and uh, also your little words of uh, positive motivation for us as we go through all of our running book reviews and we'll have more running books for you coming up soon for now that's all from running book reviews bye for now bye